Hey, it's Cindy Howes from the podcast Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Check out our very special 250th episode featuring an interview and performance with Basic Folk co-host Lizzie No. I feel like most women I know have an experience where they've been working and working and working to perform and to execute and to please everyone else, and then things sort of fall apart a little bit in some way or another. And partying can actually be a really important step towards getting free because it shows you where you need to fall apart and being on the dance floor, like in community with Mm. other women and Mm -hmm. in community with queer people. Mm -hmm. Like for me, those experiences have been so important. This time, Lizzie is on the other side of the mic talking about and performing songs from their brand new album, Half Seas. Basic Folk's 250th episode with Lizzie No is streaming now on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Join us there or wherever you get podcasts. It's Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm Cindy Howes. Thanks for listening today. Uh, Before we get into Tom Wilson, so pumped about this conversation, I'd like to invite you to sign up for our email list, which is at basicfolk.com. You can also financially support us by going to the website as well. Or you can follow us on social media at Basic Folk Pod, or you can just keep listening, which is also great. Okay, by the mid-2010s, Canadian rock legend Tom Wilson's life was already pretty epic. He had perfected his blue-collar roots rock sound in his bands Blackie and the Rodeo Kings and his seminal 90s outfit Junk House. He was a homegrown rock and roller with humble Hamilton, Ontario roots. In addition to his musical output, he had overcome addiction. He was a father, grandfather, and painter. However, his life completely changed when, by chance, he discovered that he had been adopted and he was actually of full-blood Mohawk descent and not Irish like he was raised to believe. His birth mother was actually a cousin of his who had been forced into Canada's cruel residential schools. The people he thought were his parents had actually been his great aunt and uncle. At 53 years old, his world was about to get 100% more wild. Ever since then, Tom has been on a path to identity. He's written a memoir, made a documentary, an album as his musical alter ego Lee Harvey Osmond, and his latest project, collaborating with fellow Canadian, the Cree musician Isque, on their record Mother Love. Tom's new mission at this point in his life to tell his story. He says, Our greatest job as storytellers is to open the door to the next person and let them know they can tell their stories too. Tom Wilson, very impressive guy. Excited for you to hear this conversation. We'll hear a song from his latest, the collaboration with Isque. We'll hear the title track, Mother Love, and then get to our conversation with Tom Wilson on Basic Folk. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's so great to meet you. Oh, you too. Just as a setup, like your life story had been pretty amazing. However, uh, in the last like decade or so, it has turned into like something like pretty extraordinary. Um, in your 50s, you discovered that you were adopted by older relatives. You discovered your birth parents are of Mohawk descent. 
your birth mom, who is a survivor of Canada's hideous resident schools, had been a presence in your entire life, and you, you had no idea, and other Mohawk family members had been in your life as well. And it's, it's kind of hard to know where to start this conversation, but I'd like to begin by hearing how you related to your reality growing up, living in blue-collar Hamilton as this big, quote-unquote, Irish guy with older parents, expressing yourself through music, how that all felt versus when you were with your, quote-unquote, cousin, who is actually your birth mom, and your other Mohawk relatives. Um, In thinking about these quotes uh, that you have where you say, I'm still a Hamilton guy, I'm about coffee and cigarettes, but there was a spiritual connection in that house that I didn't feel in other places. And I felt more at home in my birth grandfather's home, my Uncle John's home, than I did in Bunny and George's house. So Tom, can you dig into the contrast for you, how you felt in each of those places? Um, I, I often said that uh, I felt like uh, a spaceship had dropped me off in the backyard of 162 East 36th Street. And I only felt that because uh, it, my instinct said that uh, even as, as a young boy, that I was in the wrong place. Bunny and George Wilson were older. Bunny uh, was a French-Canadian gal, gal from outside Montreal. She had the temperament of a scalded cat. George Wilson was a uh, was war veteran, a hero. He was a tail gunner and a Lancaster bomber, which was uh, known as the suicide seat in the Second World War. Most of the young men, boys really, that sat in that seat didn't make it home. George Wilson made it home with a massive head injury, totally blind. Mm. And, uh, and all the, uh, all, all the uh, characteristics that come with being a, a broken man. Uh, so uh, it just didn't feel right. And, and the only way... I could figure that out, or the, the only way I could sense that was by uh, A, being my household with the other households in my neighborhood. I grew up in a working class neighborhood on the East Mountain of Hamilton, the East Mountain of Hamilton. I'm just writing a chapter in my new book about the East Mountain of Hamilton called Land of a Thousand Assholes. Um, <laughs> it was uh, it was a, it was a uh, kind of a cases of beer and cigarettes and uh, bottles of whiskey and uh, uh, people working, uh, men working shift work, um, migrant workers, not migrants so much, but they were coming in from, from northern Ontario, from uh, Newfoundland, from Scotland to come and work in the industry, the steel industry in Hamilton. So it was, uh, it was quite, uh, Italy also, Italy, Portuguese, Portugal, uh, a lot of Italians, a lot of uh, Portuguese, a lot of Scottish. They were vibrant. They were young. The households were alive. The people living there were full of life. They were all in their, uh, around in their 20s, these people. So, so they had young families, and uh, they were working really hard and drinking and having parties, uh, you know, barbecues in their backyard. None of that stuff happened. Uh, at 162 East 36th Street. So some of my greatest anxieties is lying in bed early because Bunny and George were older. They went to bed early and the sun had barely gone down in the summer. And Listening to the other backyards in the neighborhood having barbecues and partying and snapping open bottles of beers with church keys and, and uh, music playing, modern music. All those things, those are... Those are very important factors to me figuring out that my household was different than the other households. At the age of four, I actually confronted Bunny and uh, asked her, uh, I said, are are you uh, really my mom and dad? Because the other parents are younger on the street. You guys are really old. And uh, she said, uh, how could you ask a question like that? Your father fought in the Second World War and lost his eyesight so that you could have a decent life. And then she followed that up with, there's secrets about you that I'll take to my grave. And she spun around on on one foot mm. and, and wandered off into the kitchen. So that was, uh, she was very defensive about that. And also, I was four years old. I mean, you know, who talks to a four-year-old kid like that? Well, Bunny Wilson did. Mm. And Bunny Wilson was... <laughs> 
uh, probably the greatest woman that I'll ever know in my life. She was, she, she uh, nurtured my charitable heart and uh, she was giving to the community. She was loving, but she also, uh, you know, came from, I guess, you know, for lack of a better term, the school of hard knocks, you know, so uh, she also had that side of her. The secret of, of me not being her son was something that, uh, it was a lie that she uh, guarded um, mm. to the day she died. It's hard enough being a teenager growing up at any point in time, and for you there was a feeling of something missing in your childhood and adolescent years that was actually tangible. You know, I there's probably so many teenagers who are like, I don't belong in this family, I don't, you know, I was adopted or whatever, but for you that was actually true, and you found solace in music and art. Can you talk about what it meant to have that expression and how you look back on your first younger attempts at creativity? Well, I really saw, I saw writing, painting. I saw the, the world of art around me. And I mean everything from, you know, seeing Salvador Dali paintings early on as a kid, hearing Nat King Cole records in my house, seeing the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. You know, I saw these as uh, uh, ways of expressing that I wanted to be a part of. And, uh, and I really saw uh, playing music, being engaged in music as a way out. The walls of 162 East 36th Street were confining me, even as a young boy, and uh, from from a very young age, I, I was trying to stretch and look for the doors of possibilities to open for me so that I could walk through them and escape, you know, the East Mountain. Mm. Uh, that, that, was, that was kind of my, that was, that was kind of my passion, I guess. It was one of the things that drove me. It's still one of the things that drive me. I mean, whatever I, I carry with me through this through this life at 63 years old, the difference between me at, uh, at uh, four years old or five years old and 63 years old, um, I have the same, uh, same gnawing drive to be able to keep moving. Uh, it's kind of like being a shark, you know, a shark stops swimming, a shark uh, stands still, man, and a shark dies. I feel the same way. I have to remain a moving target um, in order for me to keep going. Do you still have any of your um, first creations of your adolescence? Oh, hell. Um <laughs> They all got given to, uh, I had writing books, uh, my life of uh, writing books and things all all went to, uh, uh, they all went to the McMaster uh, Library Archives in, uh, in Hamilton. Uh, they took all my creative archives uh, a couple years ago. And are they on public display? I think they are. They're probably online. They might be online by now. I, I'm not really sure. I mean, that's pretty impressive to feel confident enough about your first adolescent creations to put them on public view i would not well i guess i, I actually don't <laughs> i i don't have any confidence i have i have less confidence uh in in displaying that stuff myself you know so so that was uh you know i even uh, uh i i do paintings and the paintings have ended up in corporate offices and uh by by elevators and and the corporation has called me and said, we, we didn't know what was written in this painting uh, when we bought it from you. I said, well, I don't even know what's written in that painting. And I said, why, why? Is somebody reading it? They said, yes, everybody's reading it. There's words written on a painting. Of course people are reading it. I create without uh, any kind of thought that anybody's ever going to read anything that I've ever written. I create uh, with the assumption that nobody's ever going to see any of my artwork. And, and also I, I create thinking that no one's going to hear any of my music. So mm. um, it's the only way I think I, I, I'm able to do it, to tell you the truth. There's so much wisdom in that practice, I feel. 
Well, you know, there's a selflessness in it. Um, maybe just it's just stupidity, you know. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, you know, I I I, uh, I had to I had to break free of of the East Mountain of Hamilton. I knew that what I wanted in life wasn't there. Bunny and George mm-hmm. Wilson supported me going out and playing music, but I mean they couldn't afford uh, to help me out. I remember that I was desperate for a guitar. But there was no way that I could ask Bunny and George for something so extravagant because they didn't have the money. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd lie in bed listening to the shrill sound of music coming from my transistor radio speakers. And, you know, it was that sound, uh, you know, that 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 drove me, you know. It was mm. the sound of uh, AM radio, the sound of CKOC and, and Chum in Toronto. You know, mm-hmm. and and other people, you know, other kids that you know. I remember there was this uh, uh, Christmas concert, grade seven or eight, and uh, there was a bunch of guys that put a band together. And there were uh, these like four joint rolling rounders, and uh, they even they they called their name the Green Finger. They crafted this giant hand out of construction paper and hung it at the as a backdrop, it was a, this big hand with the middle finger <laughs> pointing towards the ceiling, taunting the teachers, delighting the students. And yeah. one of the guys had this cheap black Japanese Les Paul around his neck, and he was banging out chords and leading the band through uh, all these songs like Proud Mary by CCR and Venus, you know. I'm your Venus, I'm your, you know, and uh, I'm 18 and Be My Lover by Alice Cooper. And... I remember my 13-year-old mind was blown to pieces. Mm. It's like mortar shrapnel. Uh, And it could never be put back together again. Those are the doors of opportunities that I'm talking about. Um, They were kicked open that day. And the effect was so strong that uh, that the idea of of having a guitar owned my thoughts. And I no longer went to bed with a boner thinking about girls. I mean, it was all Mm. replaced by rock and roll. I used to cut out pictures of guitars and, uh, you know, pictures of Jimmy Page and Muddy Waters and Les Paul himself and, and tape them, scotch tape them onto uh, my bedroom wall. How did you get your first guitar? Oh, um, I stole it. Um, you know, uh, there, was this, uh, there was this advertisement in the paper from Waddington's music, from Chet Atkins' guitar method, saying that if you uh, signed up for a guitar, uh, if you signed up for their lessons, they would give you a free guitar to go home and and practice with. Right. And uh, I figured that that was uh, that was a pretty good bet. So I borrowed a neighbor's ID, an older guy, and, uh, and this is back in the day. Remember, you got to remember, there's no internet, and there's uh, really, you know, you got your house phone number, which was, uh, you know, some, you know, ancient World War II piece of hardware that sat on, on the, the wall of your kitchen, usually by the stove or something like that, you know. And that was uh, uh, so. So being able to commit crimes back then was a lot easier than it was now. So the idea of uh, of stealing someone's ID and putting down a fake address and, you know, there was no picture ID or anything. It was easy. Uh, so I, I went down and I used this guy's ID and I uh, went to the first lesson. I signed up and uh, you didn't have to put any money in or anything. So I just signed up and they gave me a guitar and I got back on the upper gauge bus and I, I, uh, I never went back. I couldn't go back to that music store for like 10 years because I'd mm. stolen the guitar. And it's funny because that story, in greater detail, uh, I read um, I, I read that story. Uh, first of all, you should know that I'm dyslexic, so I have difficulty reading. Uh, but somehow I'm able to write books. And I only ever read in public uh, uh, really to my grandkids or to my kids when they were little, you know, I, I don't read in public. I hadn't read in public since like grade four, maybe. And, um, then I had to read in public, uh, the, really the first time since grade four I read in public was at Massey Hall in Toronto for 2,800 people. Yeah. No big deal. Yeah. When I was inducting Neil Young into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. So I was 
reading that story about stealing the guitar and Tonight's the Night by Neil Young and how much it influenced me. And I was reading a story about Neil Young too. Neil Young, who was sitting, you know, seven rows from the stage. Um, that, those are the doors of opportunity. I always say that, you know, really the greatest gift that we can pass on to the world besides trying to make this a better planet every day with what we create is by opening up the doors of opportunity for the next people to walk through. Mm. Um, anybody that listens to your music or looks at your artwork or reads your book and says, I can do that, either as a schmarmy fuck who says, I could do that, or somebody who says, I think I could do that. That's the job you're doing. Mm. The job you're doing is to is to allow other people to continue the, you know, the the craft, the legacy, you know. And, and back then, I, I I just, you know, the, the, these are the things that I was looking for as a kid. I was I became a human sponge, soaking up the piss and sweat from the beautiful underbelly of culture coming mm. from geniuses that never. Never, their names never got mentioned on the East Mountain, you know. So people yeah. like Bob Dylan and Neil Young and Leonard Cohen, well, Neil Young, they had hits and stuff. But then there was like Django Reinhardt and Charlie Parker and Miles Davis. Mm -hmm. And then finding books that, you know, Sherwood High School didn't dare teach by people like Bukowski and Henry Miller and Jack Kerouac. I found Last Exit to Brooklyn you know, underneath uh, Bunny Wilson's bed, coming through Slaughter by Michael Adache, the beat poets, fallen angels, gutter mouth poets. These people are the people that ignite young minds, you know. Yeah. And looking, going to movies, I remember going to the finding, you know, after all these Odeon theaters that opened in the 70s, there was these small repertory theaters that would open, like the Broadway Theater and King William that showed movies by Fellini and Roman Polanski and Bergman and things like El Topo and City of Women. And and this is really what kind of catapulted me out from where I started. Mm -hmm. And it showed me where where I was going, you know. Mm. Um, I wanted to ask you about your relationship to secrecy because your parents were very private, Bunny and George, and how you reflect back on the way they raised you, and how do you think that secrecy impacts who you are today? Oh well, I became a great fucking liar. I was—I uh, couldn't actually tell the truth. I mean, you have to remember that this lie that was fabricated about me uh, continued from the day I was born. Well, not quite from the day I was born. From the time I went into Bunny and George Wilson's house. The lie was launched, and it continued until I was 54 years old, mm -hmm. nine years ago. So that's a lie that sp uh, it spanned an entire lifetime. And it was a lie that was kept by not only Bunny and George, but by Janie, my mother, uh, by my family. Um... So that's, that kind of fucks you up, man, I have to tell yeah. you. I remember going to see the Truman Show, that Jim Carrey show, movie, years mm -hmm. ago. And I was in the theater, and people were laughing, and it was a great movie. And, you know, and I was having a, an anxiety attack. I could hardly breathe because mm. I felt exactly the way Jim Carrey did, the way Truman felt, that everybody knew his story except for him. Yeah. You know, so um, uh, when when a lie like that, when a lie about your own identity continues and becomes so big that it lasts a lifetime, you actually fall in and you become a pretty good liar yourself, even though you don't know you're being lied to. Mm. You know, you can't fool kids. You can fool them a little bit, but you really can't fool them that much. You can fool them about Santa Claus, but eventually they know something's up. Yeah. I want to pivot for um, a minute. Before you found out about your real identity, you and your daughter, Madeline, 
Mm -hmm. had already been interested in indigenous people's issues, especially the alarming number of missing and murdered indigenous women across Canada. I watched this wonderful interview with you and her where she says, I'm learning to be Mohawk and I'm teaching my dad to be Mohawk. She seems like a, an awesome person. How has Madeline's journey to identity inspired and influenced yours? Well, she has a very passionate heart, very loving heart too. Um, she's somebody that is worth following, you know, besides her being my, my kid, you know, she is somebody definitely, uh, worth following. She's also a lot smarter than me. I mean, she was the one that said to me, uh, about 15 years ago, I've been painting since 1997. I found out that I was Mohawk nine years ago so 15 years ago she said dad you got to stop painting like this you know this is cultural appropriation and being a knucklehead from Hamilton I said I don't even know what that means and she says when you take someone else's culture and use it for your own benefit for your own profit you know and uh, I said well this is just what's coming out of me you know I should have known then that the blood memory you know what was already mm -hmm. inside me was coming out of me without me trying to manipulate it or guide it. Um, she, uh, she's able to articulate the importance of Mo my Mohawk identity to me very early on and uh, inspired me, you know, in a lot of ways. Uh, and in, I have to say that she opens up doors of opportunity to me with her way of thinking of what are the next steps. Okay, you know, so uh, you're this Mohawk guy. How do you become Mohawk? Well, that's not really the question. The question isn't about putting on an Indian costume. The question really is about taking off the colonial costume that you've been mm. forced to wear your entire life. That's uh, that's one of the things that she teaches me. She also teaches me that, you know, not only through my art, where my, I, I create now. For the last nine years, I've been creating to bring light to the Mohawk culture. Mm -hmm. But to do the hard work outside of my art. I'm going to be painting, and I'm going to be writing songs, and I'm going to be writing books anyway. But the harder work is um, starting an Indigenous scholarship at McMaster University. That's something that, you know, she inspired me to do. You know, uh, I went out and got arrested as a land defender at 1492 Land Back Lane. I mean, physically making a stand. There's not a lot stronger than that outside of the creative energy that we possess and that we use for the betterment of the planet she um she she kind of got me there she got me into this place where okay now what do we do now what do we do to try and make things better now we have a piece in this you know so let's not only take ownership of our identity and our culture but let's do that by doing good work for other people In 2014, you accidentally discovered the truth about your adoption when a tour handler backstage, who had been an old friend of your great aunt's slash adopted mother, Bunny, excuse mm -hmm. me, mentioned she had been there the day that you were adopted. Right. And when you told Janie, your birth mom, she revealed herself to be your mother. Your mother, Bunny, died in 2010, and five years later, you find out that Janie is your birth mother. Since then, what has it been like to have a mom again, and how are you learning to be mother and son? Yeah, that's a, that's a day to day job. We've uh, uh, my cousin. Well, first of all, um, yeah, the the tour handler. It was in the back of a car, in the back of a limousine. Uh, not that that matters. And it was her grandmother that was friends with Bunny Wilson. Um, and uh, I don't know. 
it's almost like uh, what I said about, you know, becoming Mohawk. I've always been Mohawk. I can't become Mohawk. I've always been become, been Mohawk. And it's about taking off. It's not about, you know, putting on an Indian costume. It's about taking off the colonial costume that I've been given. Well, it's, it's kind of the same thing. It's really not about uh, becoming mother and son. It's about shedding the lie that we've, that we've uh, been kind of beaten by our whole lives. So I don't know. I don't really know how that's done. It's, it's one mm -hmm. step at a time, you know, and it's not even, it's not even, you can't map it out. You can't map it. It's not, it's not problem solving in, in any traditional, in any traditional definition. Um, Janie, we, I had to take Janie out to her podiatrist last year. And uh, it's a podiatrist's office up above a shopper's drug mart out in Dundas on King Street, just about 20 minutes from here. It was cold. It was wintertime. She had one of those nylon jackets on. And uh, we were sitting in the waiting room of the podiatrist, who neither one of us had ever met. And she leaned over me. <clears throat> she leaned actually into me, into the seat beside me. And uh, her coat was making all that sound that nylon coat does. So it was the loudest thing in the entire room, in the entire waiting room. <laughs> she leaned over me, and I thought she was going to do, you know, one of those silent dog vomits. You know, when the dog vomits, it just kind of goes, <laughs> just vomits, right? You don't really hear anything. It's like, oh. Um, <laughs> so she's leaning over my lap like that, and uh, I and she said uh, today, Tom. Uh, I'm going to introduce you to the doctor as my son. And I said, okay, Janie. And that was that. That was her first acknowledgement of me as her son. And we went into the podiatrist's office, and uh, she said, "Hello, doctor." She goes, "I'd like you. I brought my son with me today. I'd like you to meet my son, Tom." That was a big step for her because she still refers to Bunny as my mother. She still refers to George Wilson as my father. She doesn't even dare to put herself into the equation mm. and and say, you know, she doesn't ignore, she doesn't use the phrase, uh, the term mother with me very often, a little bit now. So, I mean... You know what? This is this is a ridiculous road that we're on. This is a road that was you know paved by a lie. Let's just you know say it the way it is. It's a mm -hmm. it's a road that we're on that was paved by a lie. So uh, we have to take what we can from one another when we when we can. You know, I mean, uh, as soon as I found out she was my mother, I got her out of her shitty apartment and got her a condo. You know, just down off Lock Street here and. You know, I try to take care of her in every way, you know, and make sure that she has money and food and all that kind of stuff that you would do for a mother. Um, but the the working, the mechanics of it, you know, the definition of who we are is, is still up in the air. And it's still, uh, you know, it's still changing day to day, you know. Mm -hmm. Some days... Some days Bunny is still referred to as my mother, and some days uh, we go to the podiatrist, and she says, "I'm going to introduce you as my son." Um, you are extremely public about your story, and you've written a best-selling memoir, turned into a documentary. You've written mm -hmm. albums about your experience, um, and I'm wondering about any times within you where you feel doubt. Like, to me, your journey comes off as very authentic and very deep, but I wonder if you've ever faced scrutiny or an internal struggle in being so public about this. Um, if you could talk about that line between telling your truth, honoring your story, and not coming off as, like, inauthentic. Mm. Well, uh, people's opinions don't really, uh, I don't really give a shit what people think. Um, 
you know, I open up my Twitter once in a while. I see, you know, pretendians uh, trending, you know. I see even see, mm-hmm. you know, friends of mine being called out. Uh, I just, you know, all I got to say is come and get me. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, come and get me. I've been claimed by Ganawage. My mother is Jane Lazar, Mohawk from Ganawage. My father, Louis Bova, Mohawk from Ganawage. My brothers and sisters, all Mohawks from Ganawage. Mm. I don't need to prove shit to anybody. Uh, the biggest proof that's had to be uh, thrown around is Janie and I. It's a personal story. The reason why the story got told is because it's interesting. The reason why there was a documentary was because people needed to see it. Somebody felt people needed to see it. Mm. It's the same, uh, the same as the strokes of paint that I put on a canvas or the words that I write down on a page. It's moving a story forward. I'm not trying to represent an entire body of people. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to tell the story of indigenous people. I'm not trying to tell the story of Mohawk people. I'm telling my story. Mm-hmm. So if you want to get in the way of that, that's your problem. Um, all I can say is that uh, uh, after living under the, the hard thumb of a lie my entire life, I feel like I'm the last man standing. And so I have to tell my truth. Mm-hmm. So uh, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Famous last words. But what could possibly go wrong? I love that answer. I love the answer. I hope it was all right to ask that. Yeah, it's, it's fine to ask that, you know. I mean, I, I mean, I, you know, come on now. I've had uh, the first, uh, for the first little while, you know, uh, people were uh, saying, well, so how Indian are you? Right? You know, which is, uh, I don't take offense to that. I'm people, shaking my head. Pe- oh, <laughs> no people, one can see it. <laughs> I know. People are people, though. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. pe- pe- and these are, I-, I got asked that question from people who were not trying to be rude or throw me off. It's just, that was the question that that's a question that's okay to ask, you know, Yeah. for, uh, for settlers, I guess, <laughs> or for the colonial world, uh, you know, uh, uh, so th- those kind of questions, uh, came up and, uh, I don't know what, why, why I I haven't known about being Mohawk long enough to be able to defend myself at that point. Mm -hmm. So how about I just keep building this muscle? How about I just keep telling this story? How about I just represent myself Mm -hmm. so that I open up an opportunity for other people to either identify with my story or have the story resonate with them because the story of identity is uh, is a big part of what's missing in our people. Mm-hmm. Um, our land, our lives, our water, those are, those are important issues. Land defense, But our identity, it's something that a majority of the population takes for granted. Mm -hmm. It's something that many in the indigenous world do not take for granted. And and in fact, across the board, it doesn't matter if you are indigenous or if you are Dutch. Fact is, is that uh, family secrets and the stories of adoptions and people waking up one day and all of a sudden finding out that the woman they thought was their sister their entire life just turns out to be their mother. Mm-hmm. Those are all real stories. So um, uh, how about we start speaking with one another? How about we have this conversation with one another? And if I'm one of the people that have that story, then uh, I'm going to share it. When did you learn your mohawk name and how has it helped you on your path to identity well first of all it means two roads which is just like oh my god is there anything that uh oh there it is right here here's 
it looks backwards there. That's Dale Hahn. No, I can see it. It's yeah, yeah. And then, well, that's upside down for sure. It's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, it, it was a, it was a name that was given to me in Ganawaga. How do you pronounce it? Deo Hahaga. Uh, Deo Hahaga. Um, you know, Mohawk, uh, de, uh, the T's are D's and the K's are G's. <laughs> At least that's, this is the only Mohawk word I really know. So, um, Deo Hahaga, that's, uh, I think that somebody just gave um, one of my ancestors a typewriter and they just kind of went in this, that there's a language so that you can understand it. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a language. I mean, there, there's an example, you know, I mean, how many, let's call them dialects of Mohawk are there? Um, uh, people who are experts at the language sometimes don't understand uh what someone else is saying my sister who's really really has a, gr a grasp on the mohawk language you know she can't she can't really translate that well from english into mohawk she can speak in mohawk but if i i said well how do i say you know i mean i was writing a story i said how do i say bus in mohawk she goes well, we don't have a <laughs> We don't have a word for bus. There was no buses when when we when our language was around. It would be, you know, um, transporting people. It would be like uh, more like a verb. It would be more like the movement of people rather than bus. That's a, that's a that's an example. But um, there's people, uh, luckily, who are trying to trying to uh, dig deeper in learning their language. You know. I'm 63. I barely got a grasp on English. You know, I don't know if I'm going to be learning too much Mohawk in my time. <laughs> uh, you've said the important work now is to keep telling the story to as many people as I can in mm -hmm. as many mediums as I can. Um, in addition to your music, you're also a painter and a writer. And how did your relationship to your artistic expression change? once you discovered your indigenous identity and how does it continue to change? Um, I no longer, when searching for the subjects that I needed to write about, there was no more. Mind you, I was never one of those Queen Street West Ponzi's, you know, that hang around in Toronto with, uh, you know, all they're missing is a beret, sitting around in coffee shops waiting for you know, the art to come to them. You know, I was always somebody that believed that I had to go out and find the art and create the art. Um, so, uh, but now this has been dropped. This is a great gift that has been dropped into my lap at a late age. Um, all of my work from the, the uh, residential school exhibit that opened at Stratford uh, this year uh, to the eight-foot nun that I built that has blood splattered on her face and the names of thousand lost children from residential mm -hmm. schools in it, uh, to the next book that I write, to the music that I'm creating after I do this interview, uh, to the play that is uh, going to be opening in 2024. This is the creative path. This is really all I have. I didn't grow up in Ganawage. I come from seven generations of iron workers, the men who built North America into the sky. And I have, I get nervous getting on a stepladder to change a light bulb. I, I come from people who have worked hard and who have been able to define themselves with every breath that they've taken in their life. So I want to honor that. My job is to keep creating and to be getting closer to having my culture wrapped around me. Your collaboration with Iskwe, who is Cree Mati and was raised in an indigenous community uh, the album Mother Love is about finding, celebrating, and sharing who you are. And Iskwe has said of your collaboration, our experiences in life are vastly different but oddly similar. 
Can mm-hmm. you expand on what that means to you and what did you learn about yourself and your indigenous identity from working with her? Well, I didn't, um, uh, I didn't, I, I, once again, you know, she said we didn't have the same experiences. So uh, I, I didn't have a, I didn't have a, a home to go to, to, uh, to learn anything about my, my culture, my language, my songs, my colors. But I truly appreciate being around her energy and her drive and her knowledge. And uh, she's been an inspiration to me, Um, you know, on a few levels that way, you know. She, uh, She shows me dignity and pride in who she is. She could be doing that as a... Métis Cree, or she could be doing that as a Scots Irish. She is just, uh, she she's got a great energy uh, that uh, I'm happy I get to uh, be a part of. You met really organically, like basically in the real world, at a beer league softball game. Yeah, and decided later on to make music together. So how did the natural, unforced connection and chemistry play into the vibe of the music? Hmm. You know, it's one of those things you don't ask too many questions about. If things are going well, you know, you kind of just, <laughs> you kind of allow them to keep going well. It's almost uh, one of those feelings that if you, if you try to control that energy and the organic drive, you know, it's like sticking a spoke or sticking a, putting a stick in the spokes, you know, and fucking it all up. <laughs> yeah, we met, neither one of us were playing softball and neither one of us were drinking beer. I was watching my um, son-in-law at the time play for a team that um, Iskway's partner at the time was on. And uh, uh, we, we got to know each other. And then my daughter uh, brought me out to see a couple of her shows and she was great. And then we were at a couple festivals together, and we uh, we didn't think really much much of it beyond that. And then we did a uh, did an award show in Ottawa, the Inspire Awards, and they had hired me. And they said, "Would you mind doing a duet? We'd like you to collaborate with some other artists." I said, "That's fine with me." And they said, "Well, we'd like you to get together and do a song with Isquay and Chuck Copinus." And I said, "That sounds great. I would love to sing with Isquay." And there was something. <clears throat> that we didn't uh, recognize when we performed on that show. There's something that the other 2,000 people in the room did recognize, though. And uh, then there was something that uh, uh, Red Music Rising, the record label, recognized, and people thought this was a good idea. I love mm-hmm. singing with Isquay, and I think it shows, and uh, hopefully we'll get to do more of it. Your styles are pretty different. Like, you're like a no-nonsense Roots Rock, Isquay, creates high-concept pop recordings. So now that you've had time to sit with it, what do you like about the sound when you come together? I liked what Serena Ryder did with it. Um, I would have taken it in another direction. Isquay was, uh, was adamant about a, uh, a female, a woman, uh, Basically, and I, I thought this was really cool because this guy said, I think that you should, well, she didn't say this, I'm paraphrasing, but the, the, uh, the process was that I was going to be the only man on, on the record. And I like that because I like the company of women more than I like the company of men anyway. So when we, uh, when we got together to record, I was going to produce the record. And she said, I think that a woman should record the record. And I thought, well, that's a good idea. And then Serena Ryder uh, came on board. And I thought, well, that's an even better idea. Um, but as far as uh, what we do musically, I mean, I'm known for this Roots Rock thing, right? Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I, I would do soundtracks for movies, you know. I've, I'm writing with... Uh, you know, Kevin Drew from uh, Broken Social Scene. You know, I've, I've also, you know, worked with people like Lucinda Williams and Sarah McLaughlin, Murray McLaughlin. I mean, I, I refuse to be pigeonholed, you know, mm-hmm. uh, for, for what I do. 
So, a multifaceted individual. I guess, you know, or just really allowing, uh, uh, creating without ego. How's that? Mm-hmm. I think that might be might be a better term. In fact, it's a term I kind of like better. But um, when when you are uh, creating without ego, anything can happen. When you're mm-hmm. creating to get a hit on the radio, or your next hit on the radio, or uh, you know, leading with ego, then you're really limiting the possibilities. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean. Oh my God, why do we become artists? Well, one of the reasons we become artists is because we don't want to be told what to do. Another reason why we become artists is that we can do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it. Uh, so, so why put limitations on that? It takes a lifetime to figure that out as a writer or as an artist, totally. you know? And I mean, uh, let's, let's acknowledge that and let anything happen. I mean, what do you got to lose? Would you be able to, so in thinking about like writing without ego, not writing for airplay, Serena and you wrote um, songs on the album. And what, like, what has been the evolution of you learning that lesson of writing without ego and not writing for commercial success in your writing? As soon as I broke away from major record labels. I mean, in the 90s, I was with uh, giant corporate record labels, who, by the way, got me a lot of hits on the radios and on MTV around the world and much music here and and put a lot of money in my pocket. But, you know, that well, that well went dry. And I'm glad it did, because Mm -hmm. uh, uh, now I've been surviving as an artist uh, without that mandate for... I don't know, 15, 20 years. Hmm. You know, it's just like anything. It's like any any addiction. Uh, writing for radio or writing for airplay or writing so that somebody likes you. Um, that's bullshit, man. Uh, hmm. You know, that's that. there should be a rehab for that. There should be, you know, there should be a giant... <laughs> ho- yeah, there should be a giant <laughs> hospital where people go and, 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 uh, and create things that they're not trying to please you know, or think that they're going to, you know, be able to please the world with, you know, wouldn't that be yeah. great? This question is kind of wacky. Um, when reading about you and the contrast bes- between yourself and Isquay, it seems like people are quick to point out how big your sound is, how tall you are, how larger than life your presence is. So how do you think your physical appearance has translated into your musical output and how has that evolved? That's actually a great question that I do not have an answer for. Um, it's funny, I'm kind of like a horse. I think I'm the size of a dog, so I never see myself as being that big. Uh, maybe because um, I've always wanted what I sing and say and write to be bigger than me. Maybe it's part of that ego thing that I've been fighting for many, many years, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I don't know. The, if if anything, I, I get as much, uh, I get commentary that says, uh, geez, you're, you're, you're not as big as I thought you'd be, to, um, wow, I can't believe how big you are. So, I mean, I don't even know. I don't even know how big. Mm-hmm. big I am I'm you know what I'm 63 and I'm six foot two and I used to be six foot four and I used to be 180 pounds and now I'm about 230 pounds so you know I don't have any control over that and and why why do I need to really dwell on something I have no control over <laughs> mm-hmm. um to wrap things up here uh, I wanted to know more about your second book blood memory it's about generational traumas that live inside of us. What can you say about the status of your second book and what it has taught you about generational trauma? I'm turning to uh, going back to write, uh, continue writing the second book uh, this week. And uh, I've the book comes out September of this year. So I, I better 
kind of. I better, better start. Ki- I better start kicking some ass. Yeah. I have notes all over my wall here about subjects I need to get to, but the story that I'm really sitting down to write now is, and I've written about. Uh, I've probably written about seventy to a hundred thousand words for the book already, but I have to really uh, take on how Janie, my mother's life, and my life ran neck and neck and how we experience the same things at different times in our lives mm. and just how similar our existence is unlike any other mother-child relationship that that i know of hmm. do you want to tell your neil young story okay so so my my um the drummer from junk house ray Ferrugia, he's never owned a neil young record doesn't know any Neil Young songs. Knows a few that were on the radio. He uh, he ends up marrying Neil Young's sister Astrid. So now he's in in that world, right? He mm-hmm. does things like, uh, "Hey, what are you doing?" Oh, he says, "We're go- I'm going to Colorado. Uh, I'm going down with uh, Astrid, uh, Neil, and Daryl. Daryl Hannah, right? Mm. A mermaid, right?" Actually, who doesn't who doesn't want to go anywhere with a mermaid anyway? So, um, but he doesn't know any Neil Young songs. As a result, Neil really likes him because unlike you or me, it, n- it never happens in the conversation where you break right. down and say, "Oh my God, I have to tell you just how important you've been to me." So I call Ray up on a Sunday night. This is going back years. I call him and say, hey, man, what are you doing? He goes, I'm at the Juno Awards. I said, what, you're at the Juno Awards? You fucking hate the Juno Awards. When we were getting Junos, you never wanted to go, yeah, yeah, he says, I know. He said, but Neil's up for a Lifetime Achievement Award. He's getting this big award tonight. He had all the family down. I said, hey, that's really cool. Well, that's a nice thing to do. I said, well, where are you? I'm at at the Royal York in Toronto. Well, you're at the Royal York. Fancy, huh? You got a room there? No. I said, well, whose room are you in? He said, I'm in Neil's room. Obviously. You're in Neil's room. I said, oh, my God. I said, who else is there? He said, no one. Just me and Neil. Oh, my God. You're alone in a hotel room with Neil Young. I said, oh, my God. I said, what's he doing? He said, I don't know. He's sitting on the bed, playing guitar, singing. (laughs) Oh, my God. You're alone in a hotel room with Neil Young, and he's sitting on the bed playing guitar and singing I said what song is he singing and he leans into the phone he goes I don't want to ask him in case it's one of his big ones <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a true story that's a good story yeah man alright Tom are you ready for the lightning round okay I think I am okay what is a song that makes you cry every time uh, if you could read my mind by Gordon Lightfoot what color is your soul uh, it's it's starting to get lighter. Let's just see where it would be. I think it's 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 uh, it's dark green right now. Uh-huh. What is your least favorite household chore? Uh, waking up. <laughs> Who is your celebrity crush? Here's the funny thing, and this is going to stop the lightning part of this round. <laughs> is that uh, I don't know any actors. <laughs> celebrity crush oh my god I, I how about we come back to that okay I'll, 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 yeah all right what is your most useful non-musical skill uh writing what is the best gas station delicacy a crunchy bar hmm what is your favorite neil young song it's a good question tonight's night did you think of your celebrity crush is it neil young Oh, uh, I don't know. You look pretty well known. I'll say it's going to be you today. Oh, thank you. (laughs) I'll say Neil Young, too. Okay, great. Where's the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Newfoundland. Ooh, great. All right, that's the end of the lightning round. Well, that was pretty good. Well, listen, hey, thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you for for talking to me. Reading about your story was like an absolute pleasure i really enjoyed getting ready for this interview and i'm looking forward to reading your next book and well i'll work hard on it today for you uh so we'll see where we get and thank you for the time i'm i'm not um uh, let me be honest i'm not particularly smart right now (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm, I seem to be a bit on the dumb side today, but you know what? You've been really patient with me, and, and thank you for that. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by me, Cindy House. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there. Wherever you get podcasts, you can find it at basicfolk.com, or you can search for us on the SiriusXM app under Basic Folk. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for checking out the show today. Mm, Bye.